Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. Pretty sure this is episode 47. I am definitely sure this is the evening of March 1st, 2017. Uh, I am Camille Foster of Freethink, also confident about that. Uh, and this is your almost weekly uh, emphasis on, on almost rhetorical assault on the uh, news cycle, the people that make it, and uh, occasionally ourselves. Beers being opened. That's, and, my, second, uh, that's few, my second one. A few, <laughs> yes, and a few brief that's words of two. warning. Uh, this uh, this program will almost certainly feature respectful, nuance, and well informed commentary on various things. Strong language, obscure pop culture references, and uh, almost certainly some spurious allegations. Uh, I am joined here in the studio by two uh, by two incredible gentlemen. Very, very fine fellows. Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and I Michael d- Moynihan, national correspondent I for HBO's sarcasm. Vice News Tonight. Never sarcasm. Never, ever. I feel, by the way, not, not in there. this introduction, because yeah. uh, we did, we already did one, and it we, was a we false did. This start, is too. because our engineer, Chad, who's a lovely guy, he just, he's a little, I don't know if he's <laughs> drunk, or if he is... If he has low blood sugar. Power. I think he might have low blood sugar. Yeah. Yeah. He slapped me in the face, open-handed. Very strange. Never seen him do that before. Did you use so, a safe word? Uh, I mean, I, did, I couldn't remember it, to be honest. Yeah. I was just I was. It was crying. just to talk in the Jesse Jackson accent. Yeah, yeah. It was, Chad, <laughs> stop. <laughs> now. <laughs> the fifth column is going on the air. Uh, you know, and uh, the, we had some enthusiasm before when he was like, well, you know, Michael Moynihan and Matt Welch. And you're, you're like, oh, you're talking about me. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lack of enthusiasm. No, no, Chad has no enthusiasm. Uh, he just really. wants to go home, back to Long Island or wherever. Well, I'm, I'm all the, wherever all the meth is. If, if I seem... <laughs> d- d- he's not, like, he's seriously out of his mind right now. Look at him. Yeah. The guy's uh, sweaking. Yeah, if, if I seem a little, if I seem a little uh, muted, blunted, I don't know. Um, it's it's, it's totally sh- Chad's fault. Um, it is not because I, I haven't missed you, because I have, in fact, missed you all, um, both the gentlemen in this room uh, and those of you listening. Uh, uh, b- before I forget, yeah, um, this came up yesterday. I was uh-huh. uh, I saw a, 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 a fifth column fan, yeah, that's with good. A, a, a tremendous uh, handlebar mustache, hmm. uh, or sort of a, <laughs> sort of a sweepy type of, of uh, situation. You're doing that's a hand unusual. motion that thinks like a like a World War One fighter pilot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> kind of like that. Really? Did, yeah. Was he wearing like, a leather helmet? A guy, <laughs> guy who should take like a 1917 boxing pose. Yeah, yeah. Matt's know, doing the pose right now. Huh. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, he said, "I need to know an address." To mail you guys some booze. Huh. We got to get one of these. So, Camille, for the listeners out there yeah. who want to send us booze, and this guy even uh, tweeted, uh, I think it was this guy, uh, tweeted out a picture of there's apparently a Pogues uh, Irish, Irish whiskey. whiskey. Yeah, yeah, um, I've seen it. Uh, so, seen he's it. interested in maybe sending us rum or some Pogues Irish whiskey. Uh, so, can you stream the whiskey? With yeah, so, we'll, an we'll open with the solicitations. Please send money and free alcohol to the Freethink office in New York City, uh, 222 Broadway. New York, New York. I believe the zip code is 10038. We're up on the 24th floor. You can send it to... By the way, why are they sending things to your fucking office? Why not? You bastard. Why not? It always makes it here. Because you have like because one, I barely drink. No, I know you have like one drink. But and if the they're next sending money, you know, I should get it first. You're like dressing in women's clothes, and oh. you're like scaling buildings. Send it to me. A, right. that's that true. sounds exciting. Uh, B, <laughs> B, he misplaced the Johnny Walker. Right, like I did we, not. We drank. We, we, we took Walker. down half or two thirds of that bottle. I left on that it in episode. the studio. Can I? Can I? Can I point something out here? Yeah. I, do, uh, is, do you guys not know this? What? I took it home. 
Oh. I took the way you guys left it in the studio, See? like uh, like leaving a soldier on the battlefield. Right. I picked it up, I brought it home, I poured it in my mouth, and then the next night I poured it in my mouth again. The third <laughs> night I was in jail, and the fourth night I finished it off. True story, unbelievable. True story. But the, but oh, by the way, I the Johnny Walker Black is 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 my favorite. My mother. Um, so we. It's been so long yes. since we have had a podcast much, here. Much has trans both my mother and my father had birthdays oh, really? uh, and I was out in California to uh, to say hello to them both my mother is a big listener of this show so great. Oh. Uh, Moynihan if you could clean up your potty mouth hello for, mom welch for, for... I was actually by the way what? just so you know yeah. uh, like how good I am to the mothers of America yeah I was gonna recommend <laughs> that you uh, listeners uh, look up uh, the, a book your mother wrote a book that's uh, it's, uh, it's true it's called Yankee War Horse by Mary Townsend it's about uh, our Common relative, I believe, is my great 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 grandfather, Peter Joseph Osterhaus, yeah. who was a young 1848er. So he's part of the the rebellion um, in uh, Germany back then, and he it was uh, in Mannheim, I believe, um, and uh, was sort of on the losing side. And they went and cracked down on him. He had to swim across rivers, pregnant wives, move. He ended up in St. Louis. Um, Missouri, eventually, like a lot of Germans, like a couple hundred thousand Germans, or even more, uh, from the 1848. Uh, no, he, uh, he, he, like Germans, wanted to fight for the North, yeah. uh, partly for anti-slavery reasons, but mostly because they wanted partly. to. The, the, <laughs> I love it. Partly. Like, mostly because they wanted to, uh, they, they believed enough. in political unity. But yeah. anyways, he was a, a general in the, in the, in the Civil War, uh, even though, he, you know, he spoke English with a heavy accent and uh, yeah. was a very interesting character. So Am I slave? Names. That's, <laughs> what he, that's what not, he was saying. That's not true. But that's, um, that was his catchphrase. Right? <laughs> it was like well, it's, his, on, it's on his you tombstone. Know, it's not his catchphrase. Yeah, it's like the Gary yeah. Coleman. Like, uh, what you talking about? He was like, we're my slaves. <laughs> Sorry. Is that? We can do a show that's insightful now. We, right? yeah. we could. We could do. We that. could do that. We could do that. I, I don't know. Although uh, that reminds me of uh, of the interviews that I, I recorded. But we'll talk about what? later. Why are we talking about it later? Why we'll don't we? We have later. so much I'll substance. I'll get to it later. It's fine. Don't worry. Skip Gates. So last last week, <laughs> yeah, Camille yeah. interviewed Skip Gates. And you're going to hear a special yeah. episode of this maybe later? There is an, there is an and because Camille is being coquettish in hugging himself right now. If you can <laughs> yeah. see this. Well, because, because the air conditioner. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but my blood sugar is back up against the air conditioner. Yeah. Chad, uh, is he still awake or is he eating chicken again? Stop giving Chad directions, please. <laughs> Jeez. You know, like up to 70 or something. It's fine. Um, but yes, uh, uh, Skip Gates, yes. Um, uh, who famously had a beer summit. Uh, with Bull Connor, uh, the president uh, of the United States, and, yeah, and a racist Cambridge cop. Yeah, and he wasn't. He wasn't a racist. Well, they're friends now. Are they friends now? Yeah, um, they're friends. They're friends now. The uh, the cop actually gave Skip Gates, um, Professor Gates, yeah, Doctor Henry Louis Gates, my yeah. very dear friend, who uh, who said that I'm a genius. Um, and the uh, other gentleman that I interviewed, George Yancey uh, Yates, uh, said that I am brilliant. So. Okay. You know, if they're wrong, about he really didn't else, hear you talk very they much. They're totally yeah. right about that. No, they yeah. did. Yeah. It was it was a lot of fun. And I, yes, Ga- by the way, Gates is a really impressive guy and an, and, and an interesting guy. Yes. And a lot of his books are really interesting. Very accomplished scholar. Yeah, and uh, so uh, because you're being coquettish about this, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the baton here and say that nice. you uh, that Camille interviewed Skip Gates for a very special edition. Of the fifth column, yeah. in which half of it will be Skip Gates and the other half will be George Yancey. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Who's George Yancey? He is a uh, professor at Emory, a uh, philosophy professor. He uh, is a regular contributor to The Stone, which is like the philosophy 
uh, vertical in yeah. the uh, New York Times opinion section. Uh, and he's written several pieces uh, in recent months about race and politics. And he wrote something about Black History Month. So I talked to the two of them uh, in relation to Black History Month. Can and you give Black us a History taste? Was, and, it, was it adversarial? Uh, it, was, it was congenial. Uh, there were some long-ish uh, sort of unpackings of things that yeah. will probably bore certain people to tears. Uh, but there were some we really fantastic and interesting um, exchanges towards the, the back end of both conversations. Uh, so, yeah, I, I look forward to pulling those things together for you guys and dropping it probably at the end of this week, like Friday afternoon. So, by uh, but the I'll way, have to talk to Chad about it. Cause to Chad's our listeners who... Um, you know, if we didn't have listeners that that wrote us about uh, not producing a podcast, I'd say we <laughs> failed. But we, I mean, I had a guy show up at my house. Uh, my daughter was kidnapped last week. It was like mm-hmm. a Lindbergh baby because where's the podcast? So, <laughs> listeners, comrades, um, two podcasts come out this week. One is just a Camille special, yeah. which is what we yeah. all want anyway. Right? Yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what you think about that. Um, but there, there has been a great deal that's transpired. Um, apart from me recording a podcast during our lengthy uh, interregnum, mm. right? Um, yes. that, that is an appropriate use of the word. I'm, I'm not uncertain about that. Um, no, but, right. but a lot has happened. Uh, we uh, discovered, we were alerted to the fact that there is a wave of uh, criminal refugee rapists who are currently, apparently, maybe not terrorizing Sweden. Uh, There was a crazy press conference uh, at the White House during which the president talked about the scourge of very fake news. Uh, And then, of course, he tweeted later on that the media are, in fact, the enemy of the people. Um, That whole thing continued to build. People freaked out. Uh, Spicer would retract that statement on behalf of the president. And then the president would double down on that same statement at uh, CPAC a few days later. And then hours after that, there was a totally secret conclave, invite-only media meeting inside of Spicer's office and the New York Times and CNN were not allowed to come. Mm. Um, And people freaked the hell out again. Uh, And the whole world seemed topsy-turvy. It seemed that we would not know where things would end up. It is definitely the case that the, uh, the, the fate of the White House Correspondents' Dinner is still sort of dangling in the balance. But last night, President Trump delivered his most spectacular speech, the most spectacular speech of his political career, uh, I suppose, in the minds of many uh, media pundits. Uh, In fact, according to one gentleman by the name of uh, Van Whitelash Jones, contributor at CNN. I think it's uh, pronounced Jones. Is that right? (laughs) We, We discovered that that last night was the night that Mr. Trump became president of the United States. Um, I suspect that despite the fact that all those things should have happened, we should probably talk about the events of last night first. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I know we all watched. Uh, where did you guys watch the coverage? Um, on, was... on what network? Not, not in what beer um, and with whom and how many beers <laughs> did you drink while watching? It was wine mostly. Mm. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> uh, I think I watched, uh, we watched it on Fox at the okay. Reason office yeah, in D.C. I watched CNN, I think, for the most is, part. Uh, CNN, is my mic on, by the way? You can hear me? I can hear you. Okay, because yeah. I can't hear myself in the headphones. Yeah, um, uh, yeah I watched it on CNN too. Yeah. yeah, a little more of that. That would be good. Okay. Uh, that's good. Technical things. That's good. Uh, the... I'm I, 
watching the, the media and Trump, I feel like we're we're locked in a, in, a, in this terrible sitcom, like a a seventies. It's like if Ordinary People was funny uh, as a movie, <laughs> it'd be like this this nonstop bickering divorce between two needy people who won't sh- stop talking about one another, and we can't we can't get away from it. And the, the reaction, the over the top. Uh, laudatory praise from a lot of people, including a lot of never Trumpers, John Podhoritz, sure. uh, and other people. Um, I, I, I found so unseemly uh, today uh, uh, watching this go down. I mean, from the Trump point of view, he gave a nice speech. He surprised people. Uh, he, you know, after a week of every, the you, you know, uh, progressive hysterics saying, you know, he's not saying a single word about those Jewish schools being uh, uh, evacuated and, mm-hmm. and all these kind of things. So um, you set the guy up for being a Nazi and he comes out and he doesn't eat a baby on live TV. <laughs> and now suddenly you're weeping about how presidential he is yeah. uh, and then arguing over how much you're doing it and how much you're not. And it's like, shut up, yeah. shut up. I mean, it's it. We shouldn't be kind of we shouldn't be grading on a curve. And the guy last night, while Paul Ryan you know, was sitting beside him and in, in, uh, uh, behind him and applauding, said all kinds of nonsense. Absolute, nonsense. Yes. Nonsense. absolute screwy nonsense. We are going to finally get rid of drugs. The last two paragraphs of the speech, Catherine Mangu Ward, who named our show uh, here, um, had a good blog post on it last night. It was it was as crazy as Obama's, like, you know, we will halt the rising of the ocean speech. Like, we will never have a problem again. We will, I will, and we will fix all problems forever. It was messianic, like, crap. Yeah. It didn't make any he, sense. He literally get literally rid of, said, we, could, we, can, we can solve all problems. We can solve yeah. all problems. <laughs> we can't. We can't, yeah. we can't solve <laughs> all problems. There are problems. problems in the world that can't be solved, and especially <laughs> be solved by the president. But, but by the way, um, I've interviewed Paul Ryan three or four times, and I, I, I liked him personally every time I did it. But what a weasel. I mean, honestly, seeing that man who the first time I interviewed, actually for Reason Magazine, um, said to me, because he knew the audience, he knew uh, who he was being interviewed for, said, I give everybody a copy of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged when they come into my office, these interns, etc. And I think that was actually maybe the first interview where he said that, and that kind of followed him later, is that he's the big, horrible Randian guy. He gets up. You don't need to get up. Stop. Don't get on your feet. He got on his feet at, I can't remember what point, remind me, I think it was when he when it was uh, it was some anti-trade rant, which was sort of laced through the entire speech. Mm -hmm. And he got up on his feet and started clapping. And it's like these I mean, we know this. This is no surprise to anyone. But these people really have no principles at all. Now, Donald Trump, the, the celebration, I was getting a little annoyed with the backlash, I mean, you said it in a, in, a, in a better and a more eloquent way, but I think the backlash, the immediate backlash is like, oh, you know, um, we've set the bar so low for Donald Trump, we're going to applaud him, et cetera. Well, yeah, sort of. I mean, I, I think that there is something to applauding a guy for starting his speech the way he did, talking about hate crimes and talking about Black History Month. Is It's just, you know, the guy, he's been so tone deaf on every issue. Do I think there's a wave of anti-Semitism that's sweeping over the country? No, but it's in marked contrast to the way he dealt with the guy from the Hasidic newspaper. And yeah. that, you know, when he's like, sit down, and he tells him to sit down, and he misunderstands the question. And he's like, you're because it's so personal to him, he's like, you're setting me up. I'm not an anti-Semite. You know, Jared Kushner is like filleting me right now. Come on, guys. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, no. He was just just asking, 
what do you think the response to anti-Semitism or rising anti-Semitism should be? And, you know, there's a hundred bomb threats called in. I honestly don't know if this a hundred were called by the same person. And if there's one guy doing this out of 330 million people in this country, does that constitute a Weimar Republic-like wave? Probably not. And are we paying attention uh, to this uh, happening because this is uh, my daughter went to the JCC in Washington yeah. DC this is uh, something that happens at Jewish schools sadly everywhere and in this country too with some regularity was anyone N- besides N- Seth Mandel y- paying attention to this y- y- I mean the, last the, year? the one thing that that you have to you're understanding slightly and you're right that it happens all the time is that if you look at hate crimes numbers the number one, and proportionally way higher than anything else, every year are always reports of anti-Semitism. Because mm-hmm. the way these things are lumped in, it's, you know, graffiti, it's verbal, quote-unquote verbal assaults, all these kind of weird, you know, designations for this stuff. So when you say rising Islamophobia, there were 60 incidents last year, another 90, et cetera. And by the way, it is very good that he actually addressed the thing in Kansas. Because, you know, something like that is... Right, this was the, uh, the yeah, shooting. The, the shooting, shooting of an Indian, Indian um, not Indian American, an Indian that was working at Garmin, the... the right, the, Engineer. Uh, engineer who was shot and the guy who shot him. There seems no... There were amp- two, two people shot, one killed. Well, three people shot. Three right? people well, shot. three people wounded. One kind of heroic local Olathe, Kansas guy who actually wrestled him to the ground or tried to inter- intervene, um, who's in the hospital now, and the other Indian guy's uh, friend. They're engineers at Garmin. And, you know, that's, I mean, look, that's worth mentioning. That's what presidents do this sort of thing. And he, he, and, but we've, I, and again, do you have to do the throat clearing that I can't stand Donald Trump, but, uh, which I can't, but, you know, he was, they were on him right away and saying, he hasn't made a statement, he hasn't made a statement, he hasn't made a statement. And he opens this essentially State of the Union address with it. I thought it was a good tone. The thing that was interesting to me was the tonal shift, which was massive. So you have a, a speech that was – the inauguration was written by two people, more or less by two people. It was written by Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller. Mm-hmm. Stephen Miller is the man of the apocalyptic, the American carnage, this kind of stuff. Stephen Miller went to Santa Monica High School, a liberal high school with liberal parents, became a conservative and essentially a troll. Um, I did a piece about this in, in, the other night. And so I did a piece because everyone had reported. We, we reached out to the White House multiple times and they said uh, – they didn't respond. Um, they tend not to do that, um, or they tend to do that. So, you know, is he more more liaison? And PR reports Stephen Miller is the author of this speech. We're going to have another dark speech. That's the way and the cadence that Stephen Miller writes. So I've been go- I've been going through all of his writings, all of that. So I did a piece, of sort of four minute primer on who Stephen Miller was. Speech starts a few things to say these are Miller esque, and it goes and goes and goes. By the time you get to the end of it, no matter how you judge the speech, it's you know tonally so different that I was like, oh, this is weird. Everyone reporting that Miller wrote the speech did a piece on this in the show about it. I get a a message from somebody um, that says, you're wrong. Somebody who knows. And says, look, two other people wrote this speech. Miller had a little, you know, sort of look at it at the end. And um, I don't feel uncomfortable saying this now because a few people kind of pointed this out. They were two Anuts guys that wrote the speech. And this is a very Newt Gingrich speech. If you, as you get through it, the cadence of the speech is a. Last night was a particular. It, it was a. It was like, a. Imagine the year. You know, imagine the two hundred fiftieth precisely uh, uh, anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Exactly right. That's exactly right. That was a not. And so totally. Well, you know, Donald Trump's. Uh, uh, he didn't. You know, maybe he's just trying to make nice. It's like, look, this first speech, which everyone's watching, is. What do we make of this? What do we make of the fact that Miller and Bannon, who 
had the kind of apparently had the kind of framework of it and said this is uh, Miller especially this is what the, the notes we want to hit and then there's a pushback from H.R. McMaster um, talking about don't use radical Islamic terrorism it doesn't help us etc uh, he's shot down on this uh, apparently according to people who, who know and then you have these two Gingrich guys who come in and, and, and do the speech um, and it just you know that's a decision that's made you know, it's like people say in films, like, you know, you look at these pretentious sort of Fellini movies, like everything that's in it is there for a reason, right? No, I mean, they're, they're setting these shots up for ages. Nothing's like, oh, it's just a coincidence. That was not a coincidence. I mean, it wasn't a coincidence they shift from the dark apocalypse of Stephen Miller, who you imagine the America that he's talking about, and it looks like sort of Dresden in 1945, burnt out, psychopaths, you know, running rampant and killing everyone. And then all he said, you have this speech. Look, it still hits the notes that Miller's obsessed. He worked for Jeff Sessions. He's obsessed with immigration. Wasn't mm-hmm. previously. He's now become sort of an ethno-nationalist in a lot, of, a lot of ways. But those notes were hit. And the one final thing I'll say about it, and then I'll cede the floor, is I get really frustrated. I, I'm a pro-immigration guy, you know, as I think you guys are too. I know you guys are too. But what bothers me about what doesn't resonate with people, and I try to talk to people when I'm out doing these kind of stories that are Trump supporters and are interested in this stuff, when people say, you know what, man, um, immigrants, you know, lower crime rate amongst immigrants, then yes, 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 a thousand times yes, absolutely true. But when you talk to people about this stuff, their rationalization of this is if you're not supposed to be in the country, it doesn't matter if you commit two murders or 2,000 murders. Those are two murders that wouldn't have happened. And that is, we get a wonkiness about ourselves and we say, well, you know, they get a lower rate, these illegal immigrants, than, you know, non-illegal. It's like, yeah, but they shouldn't be here. Everybody I talk to and I quiz people on this, like, what do you like about this? What do you like about that? And it's always back to that point. It's like, well, they shouldn't be here and that person would still be alive that's why that resonates. But nobody wants to hear about numbers. They don't want to hear about stats. It resonates because if that guy's not in and there's a wall or whatever nonsense, actually not going to help, but whatever <laughs> prevents them from coming in would, would make sure that that person was still alive. And then again, they don't think the same thing about stupid raids in Yemen. Well, I, I will say this, um, just with respect to the immigration portion of the speech, um, the greatest error of the speech yesterday, uh, to say nothing of, oh, the, of the various untruths uh, in this speech, which I, I think for the most part, it was about par for the course. Um, it was littered with half-truths, misrepresentations, and outright lies. Um, but that's kind of the way these things work. Uh, and of course, grandiose promises of things that are virtually impossible to do and have yet to be achieved, but, but we're totally going to do it. You can believe us. We'll, we'll, we'll heal all drug addicts by building a wall. Uh, I don't understand the relationship between those two things, but that is a promise. Camille, where do they get the drugs from? But we, yeah, Colorado. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, increasingly true. Yeah. Um, and, until the, the Trump administration gets through with them. But I mean, look, I, I hate events like this, and this wasn't the State of the Union, but it didn't lack for any of the uh, theater that accompanies something like that. Folks walk in and they're the generals arrayed in their uniforms, sitting there, stately in very in a very state statesmanlike way. Um, the uh, justices also sitting there, not not applauding. Um, and then just the gratuitous applause uh, at all of these ridiculous uh, warmed over lines that have been borrowed from previous State of the Union addresses. The, the one thing I did not hear him mention was energy independence, which has been a favorite of presidents of both uh, it's, it's parties because in recent years. We've kind of achieved yeah, we've, it. We've gotten uh, there. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, well, so we, we've done it. We, we, we've won that battle. Um, 
shockingly, kind of, sort of. But what did you think, Camille, when you, you watched this, what did you think ideologically this speech was? Now, and we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. you know, it shouldn't be, it's always weird that people like, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, and I happen to believe this entire basket of things and we all believe the same thing. How, what are the odds of that actually lining up? Yeah. So I like it when there's some variation, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But did that <laughs> strike you as ideologically incoherent? Because there are some things that ideologically have to kind of coexist. And that didn't seem to be the case there where, you know, uh, hey, Ivanka says that we are now Norway on you know yeah, family yeah. policy. Yeah, on family policy. This is the uh, the the various things that we will be doing for uh, for women in the workplace, uh, ensuring that they have sufficient sufficient time off, et cetera. Uh, mandating it, I suppose, is is what the president is suggesting he will do. We're not we're not quite clear yet. So there were various proclamations about things that will be done without much Dr- detail. Drug, about pl- what drug will prices happen. will be lower. Yeah, drug prices will be lowered, and we we don't know how. Um, there will be. Um, we will do something about various tariffs that are attached to U.S. goods that are exported. But again, will it be a tax that we are charging when people import things into the country? Or, yeah. or how else will you raise the prices of goods that are sold at Walmart? We don't know. It's not, it's not quite clear. Look, I, yes, from a, from a sort of ideological standpoint, this is not conventional conservatism as we've come to understand it. When you are railing against trade, sort of broadly speaking, even when you qualify it with a look, I, I'm all about free trade, but it needs to be fair trade. It's, applause it's, line. It's, yeah. um, very stale nonsense. Um, While the, Mike the tr- Pence and Paul Ryan not, not stand affirmatively up stand and up. applaud. But, but, the entire, but the entire thing was, was bizarre in that way, where he talked about the, the failed foreign policy of the last like 16 years. Who is he talking about? He's talking about those guys who yeah, voted sure. for those policies and supported them as they, again, not affirmatively. <laughs> he's, he's actually talking about like everybody in, yes. in that chamber right totally. there. Anyone who was around in 2001, 2002 were voting for the Iraq war with a few exceptions. Barbara Lee or something. I don't know. She's probably running a, like a you know, quinoa farm in Peru right now. Is she still in the, in the house? Well, there's one more. There's one it's more, a good question. She's... There's one more thing that stood out to me, though, and, and it's with respect to the immigration policy. The, when, I, when I said that there was one great error of this thing, um, were I Trump's speechwriter, and perhaps they will do this at some later date, I would have taken Bill Clinton's words from his like 1995 State of the Union address when he talked about immigration, and I would have just taken them verbatim and put them directly into the speech when I was talking about immigration. Just, just said them. Just did you read see? Them did you see the dared someone to call me out on it? Did later you see the Obama? It is virtually the same. Did you see the Obama video? Somebody posted this. I said on Twitter. Um, 2004, I think, uh-huh. and it was something pulled from C-SPAN that I hadn't seen before, and it was him talking about illegal immigrants, uh-huh. um, using that phrase, of course, not you know undocumented or anything. Sure. Um, and again, this is a man at the time who's you know opposed to gay marriage, all these things, and he is railing against illegal immigration, how it harms wages and crime and the rest of it, and it could have been taken directly from the Trump playbook. I think the 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 one thing that is proven and proven to be right in this. I mean, in a way that I don't want to give him credit for, and I think he's wrong about why he's right. But this is a— this We're, we're is, talking about Trump here. We're, no, we're talking about Steve Bannon. Oh, I mean, Steve, Steve Bannon, Bannon okay. has argued, and I listened to something that— I found an audio clip of this online from the Sirius, Breitbart Sirius uh, program from 2012— 
Interesting thing is that how little people have picked apart Bannon. They do it in this very strange way. Like we talked about that Julius Avola line yeah. or the whole piece in the New York Times. Where he mentioned a fascist, so therefore. It's like, guys, stop overreaching. There's plenty of stuff out there about him. He was hosting a radio show for three hours a day for years. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is I mean, this is a guy that, I mean, you know, maybe he's well-read. Maybe I mean, he was saying that, you know, this Alexander Dugans and these Russian nationalists like this Avola guy. Maybe, he, maybe he's a fan. I have no idea in this, but they didn't provide the evidence for it. But the thing about Bannon is that it's so he's he should be picked over more if he's the kind of ideological lodestar of this administration. I found a, an audio thing from him from the Breitbart Radio of 2000 I think it was 2012 at CPAC. Mm-hmm. And it the one thing I think Bannon's ideas are poisonous and I think they're wrong and I think they're bad for he hates libertarianism in almost every every form. And in this in this audio bit, um, he's talking about, you know, oh, we're here at CPAC and, you know, oh, don't. And somebody's like, don't let the National Review crowd, those sellouts. And those. he is so unbelievably consistent on all of these points. And I think the key to Bannon in a lot of ways is that every one of these old clips, because I've been going through, he he talks about um, his father being a union guy, which is a big, the class war Mm -hmm, stuff. mm -hmm. It's so much of this from Bannon comes from his own background. I think he's from Pittsburgh or something like that, somewhere in Pennsylvania. And um, part of this is that his idea that Republicans in D.C. need to be brought out back and shot. I mean, he told Ron Radosh, and it's been widely quoted, that he's a Leninist. He wants to destroy the system. And he's specifically talking about Republicans. He's not talking about liberalism. That is taken as a given we don't like liberals because they're bananas and they're crazy. That's what he thinks. So why would I ever preach this stuff that you all know? It's a sort of ad infinitum kind of echo chamber. I don't need to do it. I'm going to tell you what the real problem is, is these Republicans that have betrayed you. And so it's an amazing thing to see that speech and to see Paul Ryan slither to his feet. Can you slither to your feet? Because he's a spineless weasel kind of being propped Oof, up. And no, it's like this guy who he said... He complimented my boots he saw, <laughs> I, I always feel... I, again, I thought he... Every time I've met him, he's a very nice guy. Very nice um, guy. But, but, you know, he has no core. It's this gelatinous center that... All of a sudden, you lost, and he stuck up to, to, to Trump during the campaign. I stuck up to you. I'm going to be there. You know, so John McCain's the same thing. Like John McCain, like he's like he says, what does he do? He confirms all of these people. I'm going to rubber stamp everything. But it's an amazing thing to watch Bannon's prophecy be played out with his guy pulling the strings. How is that prophecy being played out? He's showing everyone that these Republicans everyone. will do anything. I had a theory during the Republican uh, National Convention that. Uh, day two, which is the day that Paul Ryan spoke, uh, I believe uh, Kevin McCarthy, the the whip, uh, spoke. Yeah. Tom Cotton also was trotted out. I think Ryan's Priebus. That was the day that uh, it it was humiliation day. It was you go up and you swallow the poison and you say that you like it day. Mm. So that's when Ryan's Priebus uh, said uh, he bragged that you know our president is going to punish. U.S. companies for moving uh, abroad. And like, it wasn't Donald Trump. It was actually the chairman of the Republican National Committee. The, 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 and that. conservatives should be outraged by that part. And nobody says a thing, not even on Twitter about it, uh, that we've made these um, factories stay here, et cetera. There is a lot of questions. I'm sorry, just, I've been drinking a lot of beer. <laughs> There's a lot of question about whether this stuff is actually his, his doing. But do we think, you know, this is what a Republican should say, do we think as conservatives... That it is the job of the executive to twist the arms, to put pressure on American companies 
to pay higher wages in America for maybe better products, maybe worse products, not send their you know labor overseas, not send production here and there because the president says so. The, the, the answer is apparently yes. It's that is, absolutely that is, yes. That is the new conservatism. Um, and since conservatism it's an utterly is utterly meaningless word now. So, yeah. so well, they're conserving. And, can, and quite frankly, that is the status they're quo. They're conserving their the, power. The, the, you can increasingly you could read, influential executive. You could read last night as an extended humiliation of Paul Ryan. It, it's, it, to follow on your theme here, it's it's a demonstration project for Bannon and it's also for Trump. Like you are going to stand up and applaud all of these ideas that you've been fighting your entire career against. And you're going to like it. So I'm going to enjoy watching you do this. But Matt, isn't part of the narrative here that he is doing this um, in order to have an opportunity to win some of the things that are important to him? Of course. So so when when Trump talks about health care reform, for example, and and I'm not shifting solidly, but but the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Uh, as it is otherwise known, was a major talking point yesterday, last night as well. Um, but as <laughs> yeah. Trump has begun to lay out the planks for what re- repeal and replace actually looks like, it kind of just looks like refine. Um, as in Obamacare 2.0, we're going to retain all of the important things that the, the ACA uh, yeah. sort of did. Um, and when I say important, important in, as in, yes, these are the popular things. And it's also a lot of the stuff that Republicans were particularly concerned about at the time. Sure. Um, so the, the it's a very good pre-existing point. conditions uh, right. was one of the things um, that, that at this point we are saying, look, that's got to be in there. We've got to make certain of it. Um, but he is also talking about allowing people to purchase insurance across state lines, which is something that has always made sense and should have totally been done. Um, but but not a panacea for anything. not it's not a panacea and this yeah. is the I I want to go on a healthcare rant <laughs> so badly uh, I went to see the doctor today because of my busted fucking shoulder it just feels yeah. terrible yeah. Uh, and every single time I go see a new doctor and this was a specialist I hadn't seen before I always get into a, a healthcare economics debate with them every single time I'm sure they you love you without you. fail the worst patient no, I, he's the I, worst traveler you know, no. like they go, Dude, he, I'm waiting he asks in, for the, the I am pat waiting, down I'm I waiting it's an hour past you're like in just an, your life is ideological <laughs> like, I need like, the pant I need the doctor it's gotta, it's gotta be like how much does this procedure cost oh you don't know well, I did ask this is this is actually how the this, conversation I knew it I because, I, because he says, well, either you do six weeks of, of physical therapy or we do an MRI. So well, how much does the MRI cost? Like, I don't know. I was like, you know, health. And I, what I said to him <laughs> was healthcare is the worst regulated industry in America. Right yeah. behind the, the r- financial industry is right behind it. Um, you guys are terrible. And he goes on to say, well, you know, there are certain places that get it right. And I said, I'm not saying that I want universal health care. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do Norway. it. Norway. Let's sorry. talk about Norway. Let's I'm talk sorry. about Sweden. But, but at any rate, he's arguing for things that he hopes he gets, not merely on health care, but also tax cuts and, and things like that. So, but do I mean, you Matt, think, is, that, is this not sort of politics? Well, is this not important to do? No, I mean, he, he's laying out his vision. And, yeah. and, uh, and to say something positive about him, uh, since I started off negative, um, and also to echo the Bannon, what Bannon said at CPAC this year, he talked about how he, his, he sees his role as deconstructing the administrative state, which is an interesting uh, turn of phrase. And, um, yeah, I don't uh, know what that means. Um, I think he meant to say uh, uh, dismantling. Smash, dismantling. Smashing the state, um, <clears throat> which is what he said in the Lenin comment. I mean, uh, uh, Trump has proposed he proposed yesterday uh, in his uh, budget, or at least the, the leaks uh, ahead of time, that he wants to cut the EPA uh, budget by 24%. Um, and I was over at uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute mm-hmm. all day yesterday, 
or the day before or whatever, uh, yeah, yesterday, um, kind of like trying to figure out what regulatory reform could happen, what it might look like, what are the prospects for it right now. Um, he is going to be uh, – some people think that he has a chance to, to be the, uh, the biggest deregulation president we've ever had. So he's going to be doing a lot of conservative wish list stuff on regulation that no president has really toyed with. Uh, to, just today, um, there was word out that uh, there uh, – thinking about tweaking the rules at the FDA. I mean, it, it wasn't actually, uh, it was from the speech last night. It was the, one of the best parts about it was when Trump did a Lenny Skutnik moment with the uh, woman in a wheelchair talking about how she suffers from a condition and mm -hmm. would have died, except that her dad totally went. Yes, all the, the human anecdotes that uh, that showed up. At but the, it was at the it was an actually on point human anecdote talking about the yes, approval yeah, yeah. rates of drugs and how that needs to, to change and how yeah. it's also a metaphor for how things happen in the federal agencies. He's absolutely right about all of that. And by the way, just a quick interjection to, uh, that th there has been a mention of somebody who would be the head of the FDA. This I, I don't know if this is. Oh, we have a new a new name. Uh, well, the previous name was uh, Jim O'Neill, mm -hmm. right? And Jim O'Neill is a libertarian that would give Camille a run for his money on ideological purity. It's not possible. He is um, a friend of Peter Thiel's. You have a, an administration and and the kind of intellectual architecture of the administration who are very hostile to libertarianism. And so, look, the instinct for people that dislike Donald Trump, myself included is to piss on everything he does. And, you know, you do have to step back and say, well, you know, I mean, Jim is an interesting guy, and I will give them credit for considering him. It was Bloomberg reported it about two months ago. I don't know what, if anything, has has moved on that. Jim's a very nice guy. Um, I know him a bit. He's very, very smart. And, you know, he's, I would imagine he would have a pretty rough go of things because of his views. I mean, it, it, Jim is is like an anti-drug warrior. I mean, he's a Greenwald type guy on foreign policy. And, you know, that would not be his remit, obviously. But, you know, it's interesting that their distrust of libertarians, I mean, in this old 2012 clip, uh, Bannon is sneering about the Cato Institute. And that's primarily because of immigration. I assume that there's some foreign policy stuff mixed in there, too, because these, um, quote unquote, conservatives want to you know, increase the military budget that isn't big enough. Uh, it needs to be, you know, a bazillion times bigger. So I don't know what the actual points are that they really dislike and hate libertarians. I assume it's mostly immigration. I assume it usually comes back to that. You know, it usually begins with Ayn Rand. For those guys, it usually yeah. begins with immigration. But, you know, on, uh, Jim is a guy who would come in and I imagine would want to streamline the process of uh, drug approval and, and, and things like that. I mean, the, the FDA is, is so crazy. I mean, in my hand right here, I have a uh, e-cigarette, a Juul e-cigarette. Um, and this, I'll just give an example of what the FDA is because I, I talked to someone today and we were talking about regulation of something. And it's not important what. And like, ah, oh, regulations, these guys, they want to cut regulation. I mean, this is kind of the instinct that people have because Trump is for it. They have to be on the other side and regulation must be good and it's what keeps us healthy and safe. I'll give you an example. And the e-cigarette thing is a really, really good example. It doesn't make a difference what it is. The FDA has decided that e-cigarettes should be regulated like cigarettes, despite the fact that there's no tobacco in them. Um, they don't regulate potatoes or eggplants or tomatoes in the same way, also all contain nicotine, right? And a lot of these e-cigarette juices actually extract it from, from, from things like eggplant, et cetera. And so what they've done is they've done this thing now. Well, now the regulation is this. If you have 
a, a tobacco product, which is, you know, e-cigarette product, which is, again, no tobacco, not combustible, you have to go through this process in which the entire process application, et cetera, for one product costs in the estimation is anywhere from 800 to $1.2 million. Now, what is treated as a product? If you have a flavor that's strawberry, right? They have some of these companies, uh, one guy met in the story that I'm doing, 150 flavors. Every one of those flavors has different nicotine levels, 6 six milligrams, 12 milligrams, 24, et cetera. And then they have different variations in the mixture for clouds, and it's all this. Every single variation of that is one application. So I asked the guy, what would it cost you to get your product? This guy, an old punk rock guy in Oakland, really, really nice guy. Um, what would it cost you to keep your business alive? And he said, we did the, we did the sort of back-of-the-envelope calculation. It would be about $1.2 billion to get my products approved by wow. the FDA. And this That's is incredible. a guy who stopped smoking. He was a two-pack-a-day guy. And he stopped smoking because he started making these liquids because there really wasn't anything out there. It was about 10 years ago. And then he, he's like this rockabilly dude. He's got a big, big – he's like an old punk rock guy. You know? He's got a big boof on it. He's had tattoos all over his arm. And he's like done really well for himself. He's got like 12 employees. You know, the product's really good. People like it. And he's going to be basically shut down by the FDA. Now, everything is different, drugs, et cetera. And by the way, if they make any health claims, then they get regulated as a drug product. So they can't tell you that e-cigarettes are safer for you than regular cigarettes, despite the fact that this is undeniably true and all the medical research suggests this is true. Um, you know, the health authority in the UK says 90, what, 99% uh, safer than, than than regular cigarettes. And this is just a small sliver of the FDA in action, and this like bureaucrats need to do something. That's the thing. It's about edit. I used to make this joke about editors. If you give them a copy of The Great Gatsby and you take off all the identifying features, it'll come back all marked up because they'll say, "I got. I'm an editor. I've got to do something. This is what I have to do. I got to make use of my time and my hands." If you give them the actual copy printed by you know Harper Collins, like this is the perfect American novel. People need to do things, and these guys at the FTA, it's unbelievable. That example you said, you know, the woman. In the wheelchair, what was her name? I forget. Yeah, I mean, but this, this is like, that was a point, like, in Me- my... Megan Crowley. Megan Crowley. In between the hissing and booing about all this protectionist nonsense and how we're going to have all these new goodies and who's going to pay for all this stuff, there's a moment, it's like, oh, yeah, he's going to point there. But the thing about it is his policies, his policies, his policies. We talk about his policies. He is, if he was a smart guy, and everyone says, well, you know, he's smart, he's clever like a fox. He's not a smart person, period. End of story. And I think that the proof of that is Bannon is, you know, this is the marionette. He is, you know, Bannon doesn't care about half the stuff. He's using Donald Trump as, I've never seen the power behind the scenes in that way. H.R. Haldeman, you know, uh, John Ehrlichman, they were not, you know, winding up the president and pointing him in directions. I get that sense with this, with this administration. Are you sure that's just not fun to believe? No, I believe it's true. Yeah, yeah but, because but what, because but, I mean, look, does Bannon what, believe what he said on 60 Minutes? Do you remember on 60 Minutes when Donald Trump said, I think every every American should have health care and the government should pay for it in some variation of that? I mean, he basically said that, you know, it's the responsibility probably, of the government. I think I think he probably does. I don't I, like and if you look he's, at like he's he yeah, I don't think that Steve these, Bannon, these guys believe that. And you don't see that show up in his speeches. Donald sure Trump they, is incapable. I'm of not sure they don't anything. believe that. 
Um, quite frankly, it's it's know. just it's it's difficult to say. I'll, I'll tell you this much: goodies, I don't, they can do goodies know, for the working class. I don't know how, how much I don't know how much it matters if Steve Bannon is sort of the guy mm. pulling the strings. I mean, part of the oh. issue here is there is there are certain things that Donald Trump will be able to accomplish on his own um, in the executive branch, just given the way that things work. Certainly, some sort of uh, regulatory wins that he might be able to score by virtue of directing various agencies to do different things or to not emphasize certain things. But in terms of sort of enduring long-run reforms, he's going to need legislative support to accomplish those things. And it still isn't clear to me, even after the the speech that he gave yesterday that seems to have bought him a a bit of a reprieve, um, I'm I'm not – it's not clear to me that he's going to be able to score – uh, a lot of these critical, important vi- victories that he's interested in. Who did buy him a reprieve with? Though? Uh, Is it just the media or with the Ameri- I, American? I'd say people? I'd say it's largely it's largely the media. But but here's the thing about sort of conservatives and all of the controversy that has been swirling around Donald Trump recently. For the most part, it's not as though they've been coming to his defense in a vociferous and strident way. They've just shut the hell up and sat back mm. and been quiet. Mm. Occasionally, there are a few voices that will pipe up and say something when there are there's talk of uh, the need for an investigation to look into all this Russian business um, or expressing outrage over various other things. Um, But for the most part, they shut the hell up so that they can avoid getting caught up in the Trump storm that happens once he is tweeting at you directly um, and criticizing you directly um, and hoping that he sort of keeps the train on the tracks long enough to accomplish some of the things that they think are important, Um, which is why I asked the question earlier. And uh, one, also, you just hear it a bunch um, about sort of Paul Ryan clearly compromising on things that he has talked about and advocated for for a very long time um, in order to try and achieve some victory. It's just not not clear to me what that victory is. Certainly with John McCain, for example, who has been a, a very strident critic of Donald Trump on any number of issues, stood up and applauded him loudly yesterday um, and forcefully when he talked about getting rid of that dreaded sequester, a, a word that we haven't heard sure. in a while, yeah. um, despite the fact that it has been, been – it's been around for a little bit um, – and, uh, you know, when we talk about the the defense spending increase that Donald Trump is advocating for, um, there there is sort of a best a best a best argument for increasing defense spending in some way or at least being concerned about the level of spending in the United States. And that best argument is, look, we spend a lot, but we've got this massive Pentagon bureaucracy. And the truth of the matter is, in a dangerous world, um, the United States military, while it is large is old. We've got a bunch of old ships. The Chinese have a lot more uh, naval power than we do because their stuff is more advanced. We, we do have some air superiority, but the Russians have more tanks than we do. We need more stuff. And yeah, there's a bureaucracy. We're going to have to try to work to untangle that, but maybe we need more money to do some of these things. That, that might be the argument um, that, that one could make. Um, I I am not particularly persuaded by that argument. Shocking <laughs> um, for, for for a number for a number of important reasons. Um, I, I don't think you need to have as many ships as the Chinese, for example, um, to insert to ensure that you're not going to go to war um, with the Chinese or or lose a war if one gets started. Um, you, you really only need to be be able to inflict sufficient damage. Um, but also just the scope of the bureaucracy and the degree to which the United States outspends every other country on the planet by many, many magnitudes um, when it comes to, uh, to military spending suggests to me that what we need here um, probably isn't. Uh, what is it? Was it the, uh, is it the F-35 
the mm. the wonderful boondoggle, the the joint yeah. the joint fighter program that we were supposed to be getting, one plane that the Marines, Navy, um, and uh, and Air Force or, or Army, Navy, Air Force, something like that. The three these three different entities would be able to use the exact same plane. And originally, it was supposed to be that they would have eighty percent of the parts in common, and it would be super cheap to build. And we gave this contract to Lockheed, and they were going to do it, and it was going to be amazing and magical. That's Lockheed. 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 Lockheed Martin. Um, What it is is get money, get money, Martin. Um, I mean, they have actually – it turns out that rather than 80 percent of the parts being in common, it's something like 20 percent of the parts being in common. There are pretty much three entirely different planes that have been built. The costs have been way more than anyone expected. And yesterday, the president uh, claimed credit for somehow reducing the cost of that program by several hundred million dollars. Um, something yeah, I mean, he lied. Yeah, certainly objective. And he false. also lied. And just to, I think this mostly went unnoticed. And maybe some people talked about it is the NATO thing that he lied about. You know, it's the money's flowing into us. We don't get money from NATO. No. That's not how it works. Number one. Number two, in the past three weeks, the money that comes to NATO from NATO member countries comes from their defense budgets. And unless the defense budgets of multiple nations were renegotiated without anyone noticing, that is a flat-out lie. It just never happened. Has Have they talked to people in NATO and said, you know, you got to – you got to pay more money. Um, yeah, maybe. You know, I'll give you a speech from somebody who made the very, very same point in a very, very strident way. And it was Samantha Power, who uh, the, the uh, ambassador to the UN, who repeatedly said this in public. And you can find this stuff. I watched a few of them last week. No one has pointed this out. Samantha Power said things like, you know, we cannot shoulder the burden of NATO membership for these countries who are not willing to kick in for it. She said the same thing. The only thing she didn't do was lie about the effect that her speeches had in the end. I mean, that this is utter fantasy. The idea that NATO is saying, oh, well, oh, geez, sorry, Donald Trump will start paying more. They have to do the same thing to their defense spending budget that Donald Trump's claiming to do to ours. And they've been, they've the U.S. has been Making this case for twenty years, yeah, that you have to you have to spend two percent of your yeah. We haven't budget. been doing anything about it, and I don't know if you think Donald Trump's going to do anything about it either. But maybe he's speaking in a, a sort of he's going to be a he's going to be a negotiator. I mean, look, this whole negotiating thing is like, what is he negotiating? He's saying like, you know, here is the defense budget. It's not a line item thing. He mentions a few fighter jets. He mentions a mm-hmm. few contracts here and there. He's just saying we need to spend more and here's the amount of money that we have to spend and here's where it's going to come from. That doesn't strike me as a very fiscally prudent thing to do whether or not you think the defense budget should be bigger. There's... It's just lump sums of money and it's just a sort of you know signaling that I believe in American strength and security, et cetera. Which, and by the way, not all... to suggest that there aren't any priorities. There might be. You just yeah, we look, don't know might, what they are. There might be, but it's it's the same. It's it's you know it's it's the exact same rhetoric of the you know glorious infrastructure projects. Totally. You know, you know get some of those Tr- Trump's five year plan. I mean, he's like a fucking Stalinist in this sense. He's like you know we're going to do X, Y, and Z. No specifics, but it's going to be big, and it's going to be we're going to we're going to have the bridges, and it's going to and everyone's all these Republicans are standing up, and it's like this is my Francis Fukuyama moment. I hope that 
unlike Francis Fukuyama, that I'm actually right in the long run. I don't want to be right about this. But this is, we've gone from the end of history in America to the end of ideology. No, like there, Republicans all over, like you look at the, the Frank Luntz dials, hmm. the polls after the fact, that Republicans loved this speech, right? Yeah. They loved it. I mean, are we really judging speeches only because they're tonally different? Two bats in the on-deck circle, all of a sudden it's pretty light and pretty easy. But, you know, nobody in the Republican kind of, you know, ecosystem, we found this out when Donald Trump became the candidate and then yeah. was elected, yeah, yeah. is that they don't care. And we've, so many people made this comment, and it's true. You know, we are the ones inside the Beltway, guys, that care about Hayek and Friedman, and we care about limited governance. You know, the voters don't. It's like, well, now not only the voters don't, is that the people who govern don't, including Paul Ryan and all of these phonies that are, that are you know, clapping like demented seals in the chamber. It's, it's the end of ideology because everybody has come to the same point. Right now, last night, everyone converged and ended on this point, and Donald Trump said it perfectly, the government's going to solve your problems and it can do it. it. Republicans cheered wildly for that. When the representatives are doing it, these are guys like, you know, we're going to be primaried by these Tea Party people and, you know, you know, Americans for Prosperity and, you know, Club for Growth. It's like, that's done. Mm-hmm. These are people clapping wildly and maniacally because the president said the government's going to fix your problems ideology is totally gone. Now we're just arguing about the details. The uh, I wrote a, a cover piece for Reason about a half a year ago called Debt Denialists, talking about how um, even the concept of long-term entitlement reform or tackling debt, who's now is officially dead in both major yeah, political right. parties, it, yeah. it, is, it is actually dead. In every State of the Union address, and I refer to last night as a State of the Union address because who I don't don't care about their stupid terminology uh, rules, but every state of the union address 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 the Congress between 1997 and 2013, without exception, mentioned the need for long-term entitlement reform as the baby boomers retire and it's swallowing up too much of the budget. We're just a check writing machine to old people who are doing relatively well off uh, and that we have to change this and can't kick it down to a next generation. Every single one. Clinton, Bush, Obama, every year that stopped with 2014, and we might not ever hear it again. Um, and except for when the next bit of either the the Fed raises rates, and we're suddenly servicing this massive amounts of debt and playing a, a lot, uh, paying a lot much more for it, or the economy goes uh, southward at all, then suddenly everyone's going to be uh, wondering how the hell we got there. Last night's. Uh, I, I was I was interested to see what David Stockman would had had to say uh-huh. about this. He's a bit of a crank, um, great re- budget director under Ronald Reagan, who famously um, who famously got. By the way, speaking of Barack Obama, got his big advance, got one point two million dollars in the early eighties for his book exposing the Reagan Revolution. Yeah, that's a lot of money back then. Uh, he has not. <laughs> he has not. Uh, he has not suffered financially in his no, life. No, no. He uh, lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. He uh, he does very well. But uh, I've been wondering. I was reflecting on on. Uh, this because a lot of the, the same kind of people who use a phrase that Stockman popularized, which is welfare warfare state, the welfare warfare state. Um, so this was a critique from his point of view of Reagan that um, that instead of keep pushing through deregulation and actually limiting the size and scope of government, he had this huge defense buildup that cost a ton of money. Um, and he ended up uh, blinking at any kind of entitlement reform and kind of bolstered the entitlement state and that we can't afford this welfare warfare state. Well, a lot of the people who use that terminology, they overlap with the Buchananites a lot. Oh, God, yeah. And the Buchananites 
kind of like Trump, a lot of them. I mean, he's he's definitely governing up there. So I was kind of wondering to myself, wait a second. Trump is the ultimate welfare warfare president yes. at oh, this yeah. point. Yeah. I mean, he he's explicitly uh, to the point where it's going to screw up his Obamacare repeal because he's vowed to protect Medicaid. Yeah. And like you can't repeal Obamacare without cutting Medicaid. So and about, he's about to, re- to to protect all of the uh, the sacred entitlement programs that Paul Ryan, for example, has been that, fighting all been of fighting. his life to try to persuade people we need to do something about. So yeah. I, I was uh, yeah, curious. Forget to, about that stuff. <laughs> I was curious to see where David Stockman was because I remember he said some pretty positive things about Trump during the campaign and his uh, reaction to last night's speech was the most fiscally irresponsible responsible speech since LBJ's guns and butter. Totally. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's totally true. It's true. The, the, uh, Trump talked about debt, which I was happy to see him do, but absolutely but, nothing but, 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 in but, his proposal but, will do a damn thing. He's yeah, going he, to explode the debt. He talked about debt in one way. Remember the context of how he talked about debt. He talked about debt as a cudgel to beat Obama. It was only, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't like quantified, like this is what we have to deal well, with. He also said and he's going to monetize the debt. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. also suggested that, I, eh, you know, there, there are ways to get out I of I thought, uh, it's a little uh, terrifying. Brett Stevens, who, um, is he, is, is the he Wall one Street of the wrestler? Uh, what? I'm sorry. What are you talking about? Brett Stevens, uh, that's not wrestler? the name of a, I mean, maybe, WWE but wrestler? you know, I'm an adult. I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, sorry. I mean, let's, let's talk about SpongeBob next. I'm sorry. All the other kids here. Brett Stevens, who is gonna, you know neo conservative guy at the Wall Street Journal? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can hate him, you can love him. But I thought there was a very good tweet from last night. Um, <laughs> I retweeted last night. President Buchanan, Kemp, Nixon, Sanders, Paul, Polk, Bush, Hayek, Arpaio, Patton is speaking, which is right. <laughs> I mean, I went through every single one of those. Mm-hmm. And, I see what you did there. You know, and it's 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 right. I mean, it is this kind of mess this bouillabaisse and of, incoherent of yeah. of like oh my god you're jack kemp oh, oh my god you're pat buchanan i mean it's it is so schizophrenic and you know that you have these guys writing the speech who are smoothing it along and hitting these kind of you know heroic notes yes, and great yeah. and, and, and you know america and you know that the that you know, Miller and his sort of dead-eyed stare are coming in and going, hey, we need to put this in, and just hitting all of these kind of populist notes, which actually is, you know, Arpaio. It is actually Ron Paul. It is Pat Buchanan. It is like all these things. And then the sort of Jack Kemp taxi stuff. It, none of it makes sense. There is a reason that people are ideologically coherent, because you have arguments for how who, this who stuff is, works. Who is ideologically coherent? No one in politics. <laughs> no one in politics. No one in politics. I mean, you know, people that sit at the Cato Institute, some, maybe. Some, some, or, some or even Brookings, or even the Center for American Progress. This is true. But, some of them. But you know, it's like those are the people that sit writing white papers and they say whether or not they're honest about this stuff. They're like, yeah, I got to do some math here. I got to see if it's going to work. None. There's no math going on here. And it's it's taken over actually the think tanks too, is particularly Heritage, which you know is now run by Jim Demint. Um, used to be Ed Fulner, who Ed Fulner had a pretty ideological core and very much a cold warrior. But Heritage right now, you have Steve Moore, who was a big supply sider, big, you know, Reaganaut. And all of a sudden after a, I mean, how debased does one have to be to a 30 plus year career in the free trade supply side? These things aren't, don't exactly overlap. Pro-immigration. Pro, pro-immigration. And then say, you know, I think I was probably wrong about that. Can you please give me a job? And Heritage, <laughs> which is now the in-house feeder for the administration, if you look at their website, and I'd love to look at a snapshot of it from 
you know, 2010, mm. uh, Tea Party wave 2010. And now, you know, trade is either ignored or beaten up on and or the focus is now turned to the losers in trade. And look, there are losers in trade. It's just nobody said nobody ever claimed that there wasn't there weren't losers in trade. And all of this stuff, and every time I look at it, just to get a, a, put your finger on the pulse of what the in-house think tank of this administration basically is doing, they've flipped on everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, drain the swamp. I love this phrase. It was actually said last night, drain the swamp is a great, the, the cadence is nice. It, it's a perfect Washington's a swamp. But Washington isn't a swamp in that way, in the way that Trump is saying. But he, there's no one who has put a light and a, a Klieg light onto this swamp and then brought the things that have emerged from the swamp into his administration in a more effective way than Donald Trump. Because there are more liars and hypocrites. You know, Stephen Miller, the man who – he's a young guy. But he, when he does all this stuff, all these writings that people are picking over, myself included, he was young. But what I think that his ideology is, is the Marx Brothers ideology of duck soup. I think it's duck soup. The beginning of Duck Soup is a great song Bradshaw Marx sings. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. That is effectively – if liberals are for it, I'm against it. So Steve Miller, look at his background. Loved the Iraq War, big defender of George W. Bush because the people on campus and the people that were his ideological enemies at the time were against it. So he was on the other side. Now, I mean, you know, Bush is the great bogeyman, Bannon's – Life mission was to ruin Jeb Bush and destroy the Bush dynasty. It's these people skate from one side of an argument to another with such rapidity that it's like a fucking Sonia Henny routine. That's a 1930s reference, wow. by the way. Wow. A Norwegian 1930s reference. Uh, she's also in a lot of Hollywood films, too. But it is dizzying to watch this. And then you think that you're living in this bizarre matrix when he's talking about draining the swamp and I'm bringing in all these people that are going to put put together the, the vision for America that I hold that is the America for working people. It's like all these guys are fucking Stephen Moore. These are guys that are like free traders, support of the Iraq war, and all of a sudden they're like, you know, sitting there, you know, like sycophants at a, you know, Kim Jong-un rally, clapping and saying, I don't want to be the first one to stop. I don't yeah. want to be the first one to well, stop. We, this is the Republican Party that Donald Trump is now leveraging. So before we punch out of this completely, I mean, we've talked a lot about the uh, the right and their response um, to, to Trump, the, the transformation that's taken place there. But there are some things developing on, on the left as well um, that I think are worth noting. Um, before I get there, though, because I, I'm going to forget, um, John King, um, as they were sort of punching out of the State of the Union yesterday, and this, these two things are related. This is a bridge to get me to the right, left. Don't, don't insult um, John King. But John King, you know, I'm going to insult him a little bit. I like John King. He, he talked about the... Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what. He talked about Trump understanding... Drunk on TV. <laughs> Osama bin Laden. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, by the, and, and I don't want to interrupt Camille, but I want to. Uh, people you, you've already done it. No, you got to. And Matt did it actually. And I'm just adding to it that he was he was called back, and someone at CNN told me about this. He was called back uh, from a, a dinner with his uh, now ex wife, um, uh, uh, Dana Bash. They were married, and they were out for dinner when Osama bin Laden was killed, and he was called back to the studio, and he is fucking loaded. And if you can find the clip, they, so CNN excellent. took it down everywhere. And it is the man. He's like, I don't know. Something like that. Fucking bad guy. I just think it's so cool they killed him. I don't know what you do. Are you going to be nice to him? It was like the weirdest thing ever. But anyway, Camille, go ahead. Um, well, I was going to say that last night there was a moment after Jake Tapper was, I think, sort of the second person to respond after Wolf Blitzer um, does. And, and Jake has been sort of 
he was customarily critical uh, of Donald Trump in the immediate aftermath of this thing. He was one of the, the few people who, even when he sort of gave him some almost polite accolades for reading from the script, yeah. is essentially what he's yeah, saying. Exactly. He went on to continue to hit him. Uh, so he's at least consistent in that. Um, but John King talks about the theater of politics and how Donald Trump sort of nailed the theater of this event. And he is doing it in a way that is not at all um, sort of derogatory. And goes on from there to proceed to talk about the the weeping widow um, who stood mm. up and who got this massive ovation mm. during the the midst of this event and and honestly it is it is the theater that I hate so much um, the the inauguration didn't really do much for me I, I barely paid attention as it was happening watching this event this particular theater um, the, the announcements, the president of the United States. And by the time it got to the widow, that was towards okay, the end. Okay, so okay. B- before all of this, it was like, it's just so it was grating. Yeah. It was, it was awful. And it was frustrating. There was the parade of lies. And, and again, he was referred to as presidential by his opponents yesterday. It is presidential, apparently, to lie consistently. Actually, not apparently. It sort of Clearly, is. totally, yeah. absolutely, factually. Um, and to say various things that are completely impossible to, to achieve. Um, but then, then we have the widow standing up. And before we sort of talk about that narrowly, the, the Yemen raid, um, which, in which we had uh, an American soldier killed, um, is something that has received a little bit of attention recently. Um, there was uh, an NBC report... Um, that cited intelligence officials who said that there was no significant intelligence yielded. Cited 10 from, from this intelligence attack. officials. The, multiple. From, from multiple. Uh, today, it was 10. So is it 10 today? Yeah, they, oh. they, 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 uh, they dropped yeah, the story before about three it was hours just, ago. Yeah, before it was just intelligence officials say 10, um, 10 apparently. So we have this, right? First, let me, let me do this. The focus with respect to this Yemen raid seems to be whether or not Donald Trump sort of screwed the pooch on this, that there should be an investigation to find out how this happened because, oh, my God, an American serviceman died um, going after this stuff. If there were mistakes made, maybe it was Donald Trump's sloppiness. That is a very specific question. Um, and it is it is a worthwhile question. It's it's fair to ask that question. But there is a bigger global question that is still important and meaningful. Um, and it is the question of the efficacy of the entire policy towards the the Middle East, towards the war on terror. And it's the sort of question that actually calls into question the various things that have been done um, by the United States over the course of many, many, many years now, spanning three administrations at this point. Um, but certainly including um, Barack Obama targeting specific members of various terrorist organizations for assassination overseas. Um, increasingly, initially, it was supposed to be very high ranking um, people that we would take out because they were imminent threats to the United States, imminent defined broadly. Um, and eventually it has become sort of less and less urgent um, and important who these people are. They're just bad dudes doing things. Perhaps it's it's. Um, them doing jumping jacks or push-ups in the desert together, and that is enough for us to kill them. Um, in either case, whether or not that is a useful tool for keeping America safe, for limiting the threat of terror, doesn't seem to be a fundamental question that anyone is interested in asking <laughs> at this point. Does it surprise you? The only fundamental question that's worth asking at this point is whether or not Donald Trump sort of rushed to judgment here. Sure. And when a widow stands up 
and is bawling her eyes out. There is a dispute between the White House and the media at this point. And when I say the media, I'm talking specifically about these reports, which are sourced from people in the intelligence community who are saying, look, we didn't learn anything from these damn uh, from the damn intelligence that was gathered there, which ostensibly suggests all we should have done was just drone the hell out of them, which is actually what the father of this young man said in his complaint uh, when he says we need to investigate the hell out of this. The father says, you know, for the last eight years in situations like this, we just bomb the shit out of them from the sky. That's right. Right. We just kill them. We don't go with boots on the ground. Why did we change tactics? Let's keep Americans safe, but let's keep killing those guys. What if killing those guys? isn't particularly useful either. This is the, the transformation of the left uh, in some important respect. And it's not as though it's just happened. Um, the moment Barack Obama took the oath of office, many of the code pink Democrats simply disappeared into the ether. Um, but now, even, while they are opposing Donald Trump, perhaps the transformation is complete. And questions about the war on terror and whether or not we should be conducting assassinations from the sky that the intelligence community is largely directing on its own in some cases with approvals happening from the White House. Um, That question doesn't seem to be particularly relevant anymore. Um, And when we talk about this, this woman who's lost her husband, it is this beautiful political stagecraft. It's evocative and it's emotional and you can't help getting choked up. This is the moment that Van Jones was talking about. And he referred to Trump becoming presidential in that very moment. And he meant it in a complimentary way. That to me is the most disgusting and despicable part of our politics. It's it's, by the way, especially on where we we honor the troops by, by presuming the virtue and value of their sacrifice rather than continually asking the question whether or not this shit is worth it, which you should always ask. I, I think there's two things here. I think it's a very, very powerfully and well-made point. I think that Van Jones is especially surprising because remember that when Van Jones walked onto the scene with the Obama administration. The 9-11 insider? I yeah, mean, conspiracy he's a truther theories? and is this radical really and all that. It's not a petition or whatever. I, mean, I, who cares? I kid, I'm sorry. I Cheap mean, shot. I, I don't, I mean, I don't think that's, uh, who Van Jones probably I is. Agree. I think he's I he's he's um, a very, very smart and interesting guy who I disagree with all the time. I think he's a really interesting guy. But it's surprising for him, especially that that milieu that he came out of, he might have mistakenly or on purpose signed this 9-11 truth thing, but he's in the milieu of people who are, you know, code pink types mm-hmm. that would say, you know, I, what are we doing here? What is the purpose of this? I guess one of the things that pushes back on that, especially when you're on television, when you're on television, you have an instinct not to be bombarded and maybe blow up your career with things that you actually believe. Because in a moment <laughs> like that, when you're talking about a woman bawling and weeping. Learn, I need to learn that lesson. It's been, it's, there's some people that does very, very well to do yeah. the other thing. Um, you don't want to go hard against that woman in that in that point, which is not, why not going, not going no no I know I know but that's the perception mm-hmm. of like Van Jones says instead of instead of saying that that this is a beautiful moment and it's presidential to come right out and say what was the purpose of her her husband's death you, you know everything about this is tonal because none of it's specific but in this none case, of it's about policy I think the point here is is less that 
you know, he shouldn't have reacted in that way or that people shouldn't be talking about it. But the fact is more people will spend more oxygen uh, talking uh, about uh, that one moment without a doubt. from last night without a doubt. than we'll talk about Yemen for the next 12 months. Without a doubt. And, I mean, absolutely without a doubt. I don't know if anyone knows the difference between a Houthi and a Hutu. I don't think that anyone does, <laughs> nor do they have any interest in finding out. It's is that too the com- happy birthday to you, Dr. Seuss book? Or it's it's the-, the second one, uh, when it's about all the Japanese people. Yeah! <laughs> it's the anti-Tojo one. Um, you know, but, but it, is, <laughs> it is true. I mean, it, it is always the case that the politics of this will govern everything. The way that people react to... You know, I mean, look, we, all these people in the Trump administration who have a fixation on radical Islam, et cetera, and I mentioned H. Robin Masters uh, earlier, is that I don't think that anyone really cares in the sort of grand scheme of things to talk about this in a sort of nuanced way in the no, way no. that – in the way that – Semantic, the way semantic that, outrage is easier yeah, and so, it's more fun. Like, you know, for instance, I mean, I remember being younger and wondering why – is Sammy L. Arion's daughter, who had been arrested um, in charge of material support for sort of suicide bombings in Kuwait, of all places. Um, why is his daughter who, becoming a staffer at The Nation? Because, you know, she's uh, – her political views and her religious views are probably – I don't think she's a supporter of gay marriage. So all of a sudden, everyone was getting on the side of a bunch of people who had very right-wing social views, and they were liberals, right? I mean, there's always this political opportunism, and nobody actually cares about the underlying issues of what's going on in Yemen. They like the quick political point. I mean, it's so funny to see the bedfellows that are made in the quote-unquote war on terror, and one of that's, this is one of these great examples. Nobody wants to discuss the bigger issues, especially because who are we watching after Donald Trump speaks? We're watching politicians who speak in sound bites. We're watching Donald Trump, who speaks like a five-year-old child, unless he reads at a prompter of somebody who you know writes at a tenth-grade level. And then we have a bunch of dopes that you come back to a studio and they say a whole bunch of sort of short things to get you tweeting. And Mediate writes a story about it. There's no analysis in this at all. And I think the people, and it's mostly on the left, by the way, and I think they're right about this. The 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 complete worthlessness of television punditry in so many ways is uh, was brought home to me. Like you say, is anyone going to have a bigger discussion about Yemen? I don't even know if the people that you see on TV are capable of that. Because mm-hmm. do they understand what is happening in Yemen? Have they stopped to say, well, if I'm going to talk about this on TV tonight or tomorrow or you know, whenever, I should have an understanding of are we paying for the Saudis to bomb Sanaa and Yemen, et cetera. And then it was brought <laughs> home to me, and it's always brought home to you, and you always forget about it. You know, it's like the ex-girlfriend that you keep going back to and the third time you go out on a date with them again, you're like, oh, shit, I remember she's fucking crazy. This is this kind of thing where I always forget that these people have no idea what they're talking about. And you mentioned at the top of the show something that is now about a week, a week and a half in the rear view where Donald Trump said something about Sweden. And then I saw people that I respect. And I want to really, really underscore that because people that I think are very smart, um, particularly... Um, Ryan Lizza, for instance, it was on CNN, um, and after the Sweden thing and, uh, is scoring his points and he's saying, you know, Sweden is an unbelievable shining beacon and example of integration. You, my friend, either have no idea what you're talking about, talking out of your ass, or were kicked in the head by a mule this morning and everything got jostled because that isn't true in any way. So it's always that moment in listeners out there, there'll be something that you do. 
it might be your profession, it might be something that you're interested in, that you'll see people as pundits talk about on TV, and you'll start laughing. You're like, oh my God, they're talking about something I know about, and they don't even know what the fuck they're talking about. It's like the call for them to discuss Yemen is the same thing when Sweden happened. I was tweeting about this. I was out uh, in Missouri, and I was sitting in my, got back from a long shoot, putting my the, the, the TV on, and everyone was on talking about Sweden. And I tweeted about it. I didn't even say anything specific. I didn't want to attack anyone in particular. But I was like, these people, I think the tweet was something of the effect of, there's so many people on television right now talking with such confidence about things that they know nothing about. And that's the trick of TV. Is when, to talk Wednesday. About, yeah. I, I mean, it's like they're talking about, and I just, I don't even know if I want them talking about Yemen and the war. I mean, even in the Iraq, after the Iraq war or during the Iraq war, the people who opposed the Iraq war, let's just broadly say they were right. Okay. I mean, it's not a controversial in any way, but so many of these people were right for the wrong reasons. You know, it's like the American Communist Party was opposed to whatever. They were probably wrong about why they were opposed to it and happened to be right. You know, and that's what happened with the Iraq war. That's what happens with all this stuff. If you have a bunch of people pontificating about American foreign policy, do they know enough to be talking about it in the first place? Probably not. And so that Sweden example was so astonishing to me because people were i realized what they were talking about that sweden is always brought up as this shining example of things working right it's social democracy in action it works well sweden has you know become so much less social democratic over the past 20 years in the more sclerotic years is when they're very social democratic and they become mm-hmm. they become sort of they've liberalized their markets in a lot of ways, it's a very free trading country. They have a far lower corporate tax rate in America. They just have high income taxes. They have a very deregulated labor market. million things you can say. But the thing that is stuck in the heads of everyone is that Sweden is this great success story. So all of a sudden, I see these people on TV talking about how amazing the project of integration is going in Sweden. And this is astonishing to me. Two days later, Rinkeby Rinkeby is this a little, they call them Forotana. It's like the suburbs. You know, they say Bagneux in French, right? For the Forotana, all the, the suburbs where immigrants live. Two days later, across Rinkeby, car is on fire. The, the, the emergency services won't go in. They don't go in without a police escort because they get stones right on them. They get beat up and everything. So it's, it's this insane conflagration. And it's reported in the Western, Western, in the American press because of what Donald Trump said. And Robert Reich, this is so amazing. Robert Reich, that Lilliputian little, you know. Is it Reich or Reich? Well, it depends on if you're a Nazi. It's <laughs> the third Reich. At, I think it's Reich. Um, the Empire, Robert Empire. So Robert Empire comes out and uh-huh. tweets that this is the consequence of what Donald Trump says. Mm-hmm. Right. God, are you – Rinkeby, if I drove my car into Rinkeby now, I would go out to get a pack of cigarettes and come back and be on fire. This is what happens in this neighborhood. And if you knew the first thing about it, it is amazing to me the confidence with which these people take to Twitter. I tweet something and I look at it 15 times. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to be the victim of, you know, one of these, you know, the woman uh, from IAC, you know, who said, like, I hope I don't get AIDS and stuff. Yeah, and said, no, yeah. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. Think about it several times. I never want to be that guy. Yeah. So I think about it several times. But Robert Reich knows nothing about Sweden. And he's like, this is the res- Donald Trump. These places, Rosengord in Malmo, Rinkeby in Stockholm, Husby in Stockholm, they're on fire a lot. And there's a reason for it. So I asked two people who were tweeting about this 
No one responds, of course, because you know they don't have an answer. Uh, guy, the guy Tino Samanjai, who's a who's a Swedish Kurdish Kurdish Iranian Swede who writes about immigration, very controversial in Sweden. University of Chicago PhD and writes about this thing that nobody wants to talk about. Right? She has a book out now um, in Sweden, and it's number one on all the bestseller lists. It's number one everywhere. Controversy in Sweden is a lot of uh, libraries refuse to stock it. They say it's, you know, group, which is like a hate crime is a hate against an ethnic group. And number one book, number two political party is the Sweden Democrats, which is burnt out of the embers of a neo-Nazi party in the 80s. Um, far right party. They're not fucking around. Number two party in the country vacillates to, between two and three. They're at 20% in, in a lot of polls. Um, when I left Sweden, they had 0.1%, 0.2%. So I was all these people on CNN that tell me that they know what they're talking about. Everything's working perfect. Integration's working perfect. It's not, a not shining example. Out, not to single out CNN. Not to CNN. Well, that was, what I was, that was what I was watching, but it was everywhere. Yeah. Is that explain to me why the number one book in the country is uh, Tino's book about, about immigration and the, the problems of immigration, how it's um, no one will talk about it. They call it O6 Corridor and like this ideology corridor that nobody touches it. They won't talk about it. Even Karl Ove Knausgaard, the very famous Norwegian novelist, lives in Sweden. He's like the darling of the literary community. He even wrote something in the Swedish paper. He's like, nobody will talk about immigration. What's wrong? I'm Norwegian. We talk about it all the time. It, no one talks about it. Tina writes a book, number one on the bestseller list. Number two party is the Sweden Democrats, the only party that will talk about immigration. And now a bunch of drooling morons on CNN are telling me, who knows a little bit of something about this. Not to single out CNN. Everybody is fine. And you know why they say that? Because to, to your point, which kicked this off, sorry, your point about Yemen, Donald Trump's on the other side. Mm-hmm. And because Donald Trump's on the other side, I'm going to be the liberal Stephen Miller. I'm going to take the opposite view and say that everything is in Sweden is, is great. Crime is low. A lot of this stuff is true. The crime is low, et cetera. Um, but it misses a number of other really important factors. And there's a bunch of actually really good pieces that have been written since. It takes a while for it to catch up. Kevin Drum at uh, Mother Jones, to his credit, actually uh, wrote a piece uh, around this the time all of this was happening, uh, the title of which was We Should Practice Truth in Statistics, uh, Even When It Hurts. Uh, yeah. And in that piece, he, what was he talking about specifically? talks specifically about the fact that certain um, uh, groups are actually overrepresented in, in crime statistics in, in Sweden. Uh, it's uh, in about particular. 55, 56, percent of the people that are serving long jail tr- terms are uh, immigrated from immigrant backgrounds. Yes. And that's something that you don't say in Sweden. If you do say it, you're in for a world There's a of si- trouble. similar hard truth here in the United States. I mean, when we talk about uh, crime uh, and minorities in, in this country as well, and the fact that, that blacks are dramatically overrepresented in crime st- statistics, you you cannot talk about it. And there are people who will uh, actually deny um, that that true fact about the universe. There can be any number of reasons why that happens. Um, yeah. And they are important and worth discussing. But the truth matters, too. Uh, Matt, you were going to jump in, I thought. Uh, just to... Uh, reinforce the observation that political journalism and punditry chatter and all this is not interested primarily or even secondarily in the outcomes of policy. It just isn't. It yeah. isn't. And and uh, and it that's why one of the reasons why you had such a kind of rapturous overcompensation 
response to Trump's speech because what it's interested in is the theatrics. Actually, mm-hmm. it's about it's true. You know what? What does he? I mean, you guys get this when you're on TV. Like, uh, so what does Donald Trump need to say today? Like when you're covering the conventions <laughs> yeah, and you're on yeah. on TV or on the radio itself. So, it's like to win to I'm what like, <laughs> to do what uh, at some point uh, to get hot babes. I. I snap and yeah. say, I don't fucking know. Yeah, uh, yeah like yeah. Uh, I was, uh, I was standard, asked on standard for me too on uh, on uh, MSNBC about like uh, uh, Michael Flynn in Russia. It's like so, so Matt, did uh, did Trump order Michael Flynn to make those phone calls? And like, I, I don't know. I'm I have not, no idea. I, yeah, not, no one. A no lot one of people knows. want to know the answer to that question, <laughs> yeah. and they yeah. should be talking to investigators yeah. and like committees and stuff like that. I'm not the person who knows the answer. I mean, I was polite about it, but like at some you, point, you are you're often polite. Man. Yeah, I you're know. A polite you guy. guys, uh, you're, you're a polite guy. You'd be more famous if you were nasty. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's, that's true. well, you know, that is true. You know, you, you could be Ann Coulter or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but no, this but this comes up, and and we're surprised by it. Um, I mean, it's one one of the reasons why the go-to like staple of so many uh, pundits and columnists is like imagining writing a speech for the politics. How many how many fake speeches has Thomas L. Friedman written? Like, uh, oh, the president should really say, you know, uh, I was in the back of the cab in Beirut, and this is what the cabbie <laughs> told me. It's the like, world is flat. Yeah, and then it struck me. Uh, but no, they are into the theatrics of it because they actually don't know and don't primarily care and are not motivated by policy outcomes. They're motivated by the fight and the competition and the, the staging and politics and stagecraft of mm-hmm. that stuff. And um, and this is a going to be a great fun challenge uh, in in uh, the Trump era. I mean, how many people have assumed that uh, Trump's immigration raids have has, you know, he's like tripled the size of previous immigration yeah, raids? It's yeah. not remotely true so yeah. far. It, it, it might and will probably at some point get true, but people are not um, tethering any of this stuff. So, you know, oh, he's going to dismantle the regulatory state. Do you know how that 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 happens? He can't do it without Congress. Do you yeah. think Congress is going to dismantle the EPA? Do you think Republicans are going to go when they're already shirking away from Obamacare uh, constituent town halls and blaming it all on AstroTurf and George Soros and Lord knows what? Um, uh, do you think they're going to defang uh, what are ultimately pretty popular uh, uh, uh uh, kind of regulatory gestures towards health and safety and the environment. No, they're not going to do that. Uh, so, you, you know, Trump can overturn executive orders that Obama signed late in his presidency. Um, Congress can overturn regulations that happened since May 2016 if they pass specifically. And they've done a couple of these, but that really doesn't happen what do that you think often. That, what do you think the realization is from the administration of how government works? I mean, Donald <laughs> Trump doesn't understand how government works. I mean, that's really clear. I mean, no, I don't mean that, that as like, obviously true. like a disparaging mark. Yeah, but I mean, disparage him. No, but, he's, but, he's like know, most Americans in that respect. Yeah, like, you know, I mean, it, I think there was even a hesitation on the part of many in the news media to really hit him on Israel on the one state two state thing of course they come the next day and walk it back but it was clear that he didn't know what I, and I said this the last time we had we did the show is that he didn't it was clear that he didn't know what the difference was he's like whatever the best state is whatever which one you love <laughs> live free or die you know the show me state I don't care do it I love it so it's clear that he's not aware of this stuff so we have that tonal shift in the speech right saying like uh, Mr. President you have very very low approval ratings right now um, you're very polarizing I think we need a little bit of a tonal shift. And now, I mean, the, the, the response to it 
must have buoyed them and really made them realize that, oh, God, now, yeah. you know, we don't, you know, Steve Bannon's constant idiocy about the opposition party. Well, of course it should be the opposition party. What do you want? You know, the press that is sycophantic? No, I want it to be the opposition party. But they still desire the approval and the good press of the opposition party because when Steve Bannon makes those comments, he calls the New York Times, right? He's, you know, interviewed by Bloomberg, I think, the other day. They're not cutting them out. I mean, they do the, the sort of, you know, symbolic thing of keeping the times, whatever. That's not going to last. We know it's not going to last. It's, it just won't last. It looks bad as stupid political people say it's bad optics. What do the optics do? Do they shift policy in any way? Does it mean that some of the goofier, more authoritarian instincts that have manifested themselves in flabby, ill-considered policies, do they pull them back now because they see that the approval ratings for the speech amongst Republicans, even just amongst Republicans, were higher than any other speech? Republicans, the average Republican doesn't like this kind of divisive stuff. Does it mean that they change things? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea, but... I was honestly surprised because I thought we were going to get an American Carnage piece speech last night. I really well, did. Yeah. I think what happens is that by the time people are listening to this tomorrow, we should see the revised travel ban uh, out. And so that honeymoon uh, will, will, will. Well, look, Iraq is out of it. Seven countries, now down to six. Iraq has been taken out. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, that's yes, right. It is. As of today. As of today. Oh, yep. wow. Because okay. you know what? Because when you get bozos in there like Mike Flynn, who is, you know, somebody who shouldn't come near government with a 20-foot pole. I mean, that's about everybody, but this one especially. Um, you know, taking honorariums from Vladimir Putin to sit at a table next to him at an RT dinner. I, Michael Moynihan, who nobody gives a shit about, at one point said, I will never do this network again. It's full of crazy people. I didn't fly to sit next to Putin. And, you know, maybe the money would be a little more enticing. I don't know. But... You know, this change is McMaster comes in, whose book, by the way, Dereliction of Duty, um, is now like number one on Amazon again. Oh. And two people that I know ordered a copy. I read it ages ago. I have a copy. It's a very good book. Um, for the Vietnam nerds out there, very good book. Um, great book. Very good book. The, the believe, me. The, the, believe me, the copies that are out there now that the friends order look like they were printed on a dot maker's printer. Simon and Schuster, whoever did not expect this, but the guy is a thoughtful, smart guy, argues against, you know, using radical Islamic terrorism. And I think I assume was also part of this push to take Iraq out of this country. That's great. You know news. why? Number one, because the Iraqi parliament said, you know what? Fuck you. No more Americans come to Iraq. No, you know, journalists. Yeah. Tourists, so there is a deal making, to use the Trump terminology, but you also have a bozo replaced replaced by somebody who's competent, right? It's the it's the um, it's the uh, Harriet Myers uh, thing. You get right. you float a bozo, and then and then everyone objects. And you're like, all right, let's be serious about this now. And does that seriousness now presage a new look at this stuff, where McMaster is actually saying, hey, so we see one version of a policy change with the rock being taken off of that. And, you know, it's being limited and limited and limited. I don't think it's good to go big and then to to draw down because I think it just shows you to be incompetent, ill-considered and all that stuff. But I don't, well, I don't know if we'll see more of that. I uh, uh, had floated the uh, Trump-Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, comparison in a previous episode. Yeah. Uh, and the one a- aspect to watch out for is that 
popularity became uh, Schwarzenegger's Achilles heel, ultimately. Yeah. When mm. Californians turned against him in the special election in 2005, and when the California Nurses Association, which my sister-in-law is a high muckety-muck these days, um, uh, went to every <laughs> single public event that he went to for 18 months and booed him, like a graduation ceremony, whatever. He saw people booing him town, every time. Town halls, no. Uh, he, and he, he lost it, and he just flipped like his the source of of Schwarzenegger's and Trump's strength is that they have a, an, an unusual connection routing around the usual power structures going straight into Americans, real, real America, damn it. Um, and but if he sees and that's one of the reasons why he freaks out so much about the size of his stupid crowds. Uh, yeah. And, and that that's the, that thing matters to him. and ratings. It's ratings. Everything and is ratings. all that matters to him. So he can't help but notice that on immigration, that is the uh, the subject that and the uh, war on terror, interestingly enough, yeah. are the subjects on which he's getting the lowest ratings. He's under 40 percent on both. Um, and he will be responsive ultimately. And we just don't know how he will react. But I think I predict that he will be obsessed by the fact that he's the right now the most hated president at this stage in his tenure. And I recommend a New York Times uh, graph piece that came out uh, yesterday on that. Just a very interesting statistical comparisons. That you can of what, of previous presidents? Of all the, the presidents since Eisenhower at this stage in their presidency, also broken down by party. Um, so Trump right now Polarization is incredible. It's eighty-eight percent Republican approval, which is high actually oh, yeah. among Republicans and yeah. historically. Ten percent among Democrats. That split has has never been close to that that yeah. size. Uh, and thirty-eight percent for independents. Um, uh, it would, all of which is interesting. But he's, I think, he's like minus eleven on a, on net approval, and no one had been as low as I think eighteen or twenty-five at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the easy point in a presidency to be very popular. Yeah, I mean, even after even <laughs> I have to look or, at the graph. ordinarily. Ordinarily, yeah. and I don't have to look at the numbers, but I seem to recall, and I could be wrong about this, but even after the contentious, contentious 2000 uh-huh. election, hanging chads and, and Brooks Brothers riots and everything, that uh, Bush was doing pretty well in those first couple huh. months. Uh, I mean, nothing. I, I like think this. after this past election, however, um, had Hillary actually won the election, we'd probably see similar numbers, which probably. which actually probably reminds, true, me, yeah. reminds me of something else. And, you know, we're wrapping up here. Um, but Jake Tapper, um, I don't know if it was yesterday or today. Um, but uh, was talking about um, Trump's speech. I think it was today. Um, and you know, just just about sort of the, the past things that had been said and continued yeah. to, to suggest that Trump was uh, using dog whistles during the campaign, that he would not distance himself aggressively from anti-Semites. And I know we might disagree uh, on the extent to which that is a thing. Uh, and that is something that, that Donald Trump was actually engaging in. But in either case, it seems to me with so many meaningful things you can actually hit the president on yeah. of consequence, given that yesterday um, there was a forceful pushing back on anti-Semitism um, to say, well, hey, he still kind of sort of said things that seemed anti-Semitic at some point or at least didn't distance himself from people who do. Like that, that strikes me as a little strange. Um, there is plenty of stuff that you could actually um, be focused on. And, and there but is isn't this... that the thing, by the way, when you say, like, you don't do it, he doesn't do it, and when he does it, they don't believe him? <laughs> it's well, like, yes. It's really a yeah. can't win. No, it's, right? it's a, it is absurd. Yeah. It's absurd because when he f- does it forcefully, apparently David Duke knows to ignore it. Um, but when he when he does it forcefully, I'm saying actually pushes back against anti-Semitism when he apparently is doing these almost silent dog whistles. But, um, but, but by the way, no, this, is actually, this is actually this is actually an interesting I don't think so. but it's an interesting point, because 
I, this is something that I guess journalists should go out and do because they go out, you know, any time there's the stray comment from somebody within the kind of coterie of weirdos or uh-huh. around Trump, they they seek out Richard Spencer in his, yes. you know, neo-Nazi spider hole and say, hey, what do you <laughs> they, think? They mob him at CPAC. Yeah, they mob him at CPAC. Which it's is, like, stop doing d- that. D- by the way, I had a phrase, nobody, I, I want I want to make this a phrase. And 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 I tweeted it at the wrong time. No, or no one cares. <laughs> I, I, that care. I want I, I want the phrase that I'm going to use is like you know people say like garbage like a what, what is it dumpster like, fire dumpster fire right yes yes I want my thing is somebody's a burning trash can and because do you remember the photo <laughs> I yes, saw that that I was a that. great tweet that was a yeah, good tweet so is a photo of all good. these people surrounding the burning trash can taking one picture of it yeah because um, it's one thing burning during the inauguration and like then I compared a photo that Weigel took of a thousand people and like. Like today's burning trash can is Richard Spencer. Yes. And, you know, why is no one calling Richard Spencer? Maybe I should do this. I just don't want to give this fucking guy any oxygen. I think he's a worthless piece of garbage. Go, go find him. But, like, Trump why Why him? Obviously yeah. Well, then, what does Richard Spencer think? And he's like, I don't want to hurt Donald Trump. I don't want to, you know, say that I knew Stephen Miller at Duke. I don't want to do this. I don't want to hurt him. He kept on saying, <laughs> I don't want to hurt Donald Trump by my association. But I really want him to win. But I'll show up at CPAC. Yeah, I'll show up at CPAC. It's a bullshit game that he plays. Why does nobody find Richard Spencer when the beginning of the speech and Spencer's probably combing his Nazi hair and, you know, ironing his armband, you know, getting very excited for the speech (laughs) and, you know, triumph of the will is turned down and the speech is turned up. And what does he say at the moment where it's like the speech starts with like, you know, we're being really hard on the Jews. Yeah. I mean, what is Spencer? And it's Black History Month. And it's Black History Month. And then a number of people that he shouts out of like, you know, people who went to charter schools or whatever yeah. are black. Spent I, the whole month hanging out with Omarosa. Yeah. Like she may not get to come to the White House again for the rest of the uh, the, the year, but she has been pretty much living she's in, a lot in, of, in, the oval, in the Oval Office of Lincoln. Can, can we ask what fucking Jared Taylor thinks about this? I don't <laughs> – I think these people – should be, you know, left in their swamps. I agree. And have their conferences in, like, backwaters and, you know, backwater places where they always have their conferences. Yeah. And, and you just leave them there. But if you're going to pull them out, pull them out and say, hey, Jew-hater psychopaths, <laughs> what did you think about the speech that started with that whole bit about how the Jews are being unfairly treated? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't remember that Reichstag address in April of 1933, when Adolf Hitler was like, you know, guys, we were a little tough on the Jews. Well, well maybe, maybe these <laughs> some bad shit might come, but let me just tell you, maybe all of the people claiming dog whistles will feel a little chastened when the Richard Spencers of the world use exactly the same argument in reverse. Well, I mean, he's just saying that for you people, but but we. Know well, that's what he we said about really Obama and church. By yeah, the way. he doesn't really mean he does. It. He's not really religious, but I just said the same well, thing about Reagan too. I've got a whole other thing on that. Yeah, um, no, I <laughs> wanted to ask you guys about the uh, democracy dies in America um, banner that that the uh, Washington oh, no, democracy, Post. No, um, democracy dies in the darkness. In the darkness. Sorry, um, and um, the the New York Times's uh, new uh, assertive campaign. Uh, where they are now in my Twitter feed, like paying for promoted posts, always the scariest shit. One of the the things I I actually snapped was uh, mental health professionals warn about Trump. 
which is one that they were circulating for about two weeks uh, with a quote pulled out of it that says, we fear that too much is at stake to be silent any longer. Uh, this was an opinion piece that was written by some uh, cabal yeah. of psychiatrists yeah. who were doing armchair psychiatry. Where, where, have we, where have we this. heard that before? Anyone? Um, Anyone? Yeah. Well, Barry Goldwater. Well, Does anyone remember the Barry Goldwater ad? Uh, there's just there's the there's whole an ad taken out in 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 uh, 1964. Two hundred uh-huh. you know psych professionals say that Barry Goldwater is mentally ill. Well, this is this it's they the talk thing. about it in the in the opinion post as well that they adopted a rule after Goldwater, but here we are again, and they kind of have to do this. Mm. But but we'll maybe come back to that um, yeah. next week because we're we're running late. Um, some idiot wrote this. Uh, I suspect they're. Maybe a few candidates. I certainly have one this week. Give it. Um, and the one is not one. It is many. It is this uh, ridiculous uh, Kellyanne Conway controversy with the mm-hmm. damn sofa. Yes. Um, huddled in the Oval Office um, are 100,000 people who are representatives of various historically black colleges and universities. Donald Trump is there. They are doing uh, one of those completely frivolous listening sessions in which people say a bunch of things. Nothing happens. Um, These are events of no consequence uh, apart from the photo op. Kellyanne Conway is on a sofa with her uh, legs curled up under her, um, taking photos of folks with her iPhone and I start to see all these stories come out about the controversy, the, the controversy. Yeah, what is this controversy? There is no controversy. Explain it to me. There is no outrage. There were some people on Twitter who were making comments about decorum in the Oval Office and how Kellyanne Conway was breaking with it because she had her, she was curled up in the sofa. The truth of the matter is there's a few people who were concerned about this, not a whole bunch. And to the extent there was a massive Twitter outrage outburst. Um, this does not rise to the level of controversy. There is um, one person, uh, Philip uh, Philip Bump, over at uh, the Washington Post, who actually wrote a piece that I thought um, got it a lot of those sentiments, although he makes an error. So in this way, I'm crediting him for calling folks out for being excited about this complete non-issue with Kellyanne Conway. Uh, and I'm slapping him for something else, um, which is, for him, the real misstep. Uh, was that he completely screwed up this listening session with all of the various representatives of these historically black colleges and universities, that they have these special and unique problems, and they came there to talk to the president about their special and unique problems. And I thought to myself, um, with respect to this event that is obviously about Black History Month, what are the special and unique problems of historically black colleges and universities? What are the challenges that they face? What is what is unique to them that they can come in and sort of talk about um, the the needs of their schools and universities? And and given the admission that appears at the bottom of this article, which is uh, events like this are the lowest hanging fruit for politicians. Come in, listen a bit, take a photo and move on. It's rarely the case that such events create new policy, but it's probably even rarer that they end up creating a media firestorm. This is true. Um, and I think it is true. I mean, thank God it's it is true. true in, in, it <laughs> Imagine is true. if every bum with a grievance came in and was like, new policy, let's do a new one. <laughs> but but the Ice Cream Vendors Association <laughs> is better. Get the legislators. Come on, man. But if, but if it's true, I mean, I, I wonder if it doesn't say more about the media than it does about Donald Trump, that these are the kinds of things that are stirring up controversy. To say nothing of the fact that I don't. The the article also talks about the uh, the Negro Football League, which I believe it was either Betsy DeVos or Kellyanne who talked about 
um, historically black colleges and universities and the, the fact that they sort of have they got their start by providing an option to people who didn't have it, much like vouchers provide an option to people who don't have them. Um, that is a it's a really poor contrast. Not very good. Uh, but in either case, there is something to be said for the fact that the Negro Football League uh, does not exist anymore. You don't need that thing. Um, historically, black colleges and universities continue to exist um, and continue to talk a lot about sort of the 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 way in which they serve these predominantly black communities. Um, one thing that we don't talk about with respect to these, and this is Camille's perspective, not not Matt or Moynihan. I'm going to protect them um, from my <laughs> from my ridiculous and outrageous statements that are totally factually oh, accurate. God, here we go. These schools tend to underperform. They tend oh, they tend to deliver a shitty product to the students oh, that go to them. Oh, and I have, a, I have a grape has turned my, into a raisin. My nephew is a my nephew <laughs> my nephew is a brilliant and remarkable kid who was an honor student in his high school and went to go visit Harvard and Yale, places that were happy to have him come there, and decided that he didn't feel good about the prospect of going to a predominantly white school. He wanted to be with people who looked like him. Um, and I told him at the time, you know, fishbowl is not what you go to university <laughs> yeah. for. I mean, um, that's to go to school with a bunch like of a, people who look like you. I have to go to a school with like everyone's really good it's, looking. <laughs> I mean, like, how's that going to happen? But, but in either case, in either case, it didn't work out particularly well for Hot him. He would have been much better off going to a diverse <laughs> institution of higher learning that was actually interested in educating students. Um, but to yeah, get, that's, that's saying a lot for these schools. Well, here, I'm then. just saying to get sure people how. to get people together in a room whose principal whose principal thing is that they work at institutions that at some point in the past was the only option for various students who were being excluded from universities of of higher quality uh, that were more established that had been around for a longer period. Um, to, to have all of them together in the room today in 2017 strikes me as absurd um, and strange. And it says something about the backwards way that we think about race and progress in this country. The fact of the matter is that every American university in the country is focused on things like diversity. Um, And I don't know that we still have a need for places that are predominantly, that predominantly exist because they serve a particular racial demographic. Sounds like your nephew thought so. Yeah. Well, it didn't work out well for him. That's the whole point. Right. Um, it, it's, it was, uh, was a bad look. And I don't know that we should be thrilled about the fact that kids are choosing tribalism when they're getting, when they're getting ready to make decisions about where they want to be educated for the next four years. It sounds kind of gross to me. Um, we should all be a little weirded out by it. You but don't if, have to respond well, unless I'll you want to distance yourself from one, it. One, one brief like thing. Um, in, if somebody goes to a university that is not sort of monochromatic and they go to Yale or Harvard and, or whatever. And most of them are in different ways. M- most yeah. of them are in different ways, but they're sort of kind of mono-ideological. Sure. But if they go there, <laughs> they're not just, as you know this, you know this very well, Camille, they're not going to avoid tribalism. In fact, I would guess that there's probably less of it at Howard or Morehouse or something like that, whereas, you know, at mm-hmm. it's usually kind of white 
radical people, the, the tenured radicals, I guess that Roger Kimball called it a long time ago, um, uh, that, that say, you're here as my plaything, and I'm going to make you uh, my project, and may, you should go to the Black Student Union, you should go to this group, you should live in this dormitory, this segregated dormitory, Umjama, that was the one at Stanford, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these, there's so much of that is pushed by people who aren't their same color. Yeah, the Nimburu Cultural Center at University of Maryland. Uh, is that what it was? It's yeah. always something like that. It's in, and I think that that, and it's reinforced, you get this idea that it's got to be, you know, white students are like, you know, post this stuff. It's like, no, everybody's on board with it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's on board, and, and everyone's pushing you in that direction, even p- people who don't look like you. So if you have an adverse reaction to it, if you think, and I've told, I think, a long time ago in the show, that my the guy, Sammy from Ghana, who came to KU, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. now, like, then he went to, to Carnegie Mellon and like, got his PhD. <laughs> and he was like, why do they want me to be in this African-American city? I don't have, I don't understand, the, I don't have nothing in common with them. And he was, like, hanging out with, like, fraternity brothers, and everyone loved him, and he was like, just had a good time. He's remained friends with all these guys and everything. And it was mystifying to this guy from Ghana who was like, I, I don't get what this thing is that you guys do in this country and why I came here and all of a sudden everyone only talks about where I'm from and what that should say about what I do, what I do politically, what I do sexually, et cetera. And he was completely mystified by it. It, was, it just it made no sense to him. And, you know, and that was in Kansas, you know. I mean, this <laughs> I would guess that maybe in equal amounts, if not more, at some of these kind of... Tr- more traditional, sure. quote unquote, and not not kind of you know singularly one race or another, one group or another. Uh, either way, I think it's yeah, probably yeah. crazy everywhere. Well, that that was a that was an indirect plug and not completely expected for the uh, for the special dispatch that will uh, that only I am responsible for yeah. uh, that will appear on this stream later this week. So, uh, plug also go. before we go, um, your uh, Soho Forum debate. So you oh, got to yeah. keep the flag flying when is strong. That? Is that May? I think it's in May. I should probably read that book. God damn it. Uh, it's cool. I, it's going to be amazing. Yeah. I, I'm going to debate a dude at the Soho Forum. Well, there'll be more specific details later because um, I don't remember them right now. But go to the you can go to the website. I think it's yeah. SohoForum.com or you can find or it. Or something. And yeah. uh, you need to RSVP ahead of time. But there's a lot of good fifth yes. column uh uh, representation out there last time. Book, so. book your travel to New York now. Uh, and, 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 and if you do book uh, your travel to New York, and if you live outside of New York, uh, drop us a line. Yeah, do 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 that. Because sometimes we go and have drinks, and we like uh, uh, talking to people who are who are fifth column. And we're having preliminary conversations about oh maybe sometime in the kind of near future doing one uh, show uh, live. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we there, there, are so, many, yeah. there are many exciting things coming. Yeah. Yeah. Other housekeeping items. Um, maybe, you should, maybe you can bring it to your town. So just tell us where it is because sometimes I want to get out of New York. So <laughs> let's let's bring it somewhere else. Yeah. Think about it. Think about it. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. Yeah. Here. Think about it. iTunes, iTunes reviews. Uh, check us out. Uh, www.wethefifth.com at wethefifth on Twitter and we're also on Facebook. You can send us messages and direct messages and such there. Um, we will. Oh, we will and get shit! Them and I just want to say this: if there's somebody on Facebook sent me something about sending booze too, I was going to mention this before. Yeah. And I and it was ages ago, and I just saw it now because I don't really check the Facebook Messenger thing, but maybe I'll start doing that more. But um, I'll respond to you. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, good, good, good fun. Good fun. <laughs> good fun. Glad, glad you guys are uh, are back, and and we will again. It's almost weekly. We try. We, we're getting there. 
I'm sorry to disappoint you, Matt. Well, you screwed it up last. Don't time. leave town. There you go. Nah. All right. Well, cool. I think that's about it. All right, let's go. We're finished. Boozing. Go. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column.